Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Alex, I'm bringing back a special tradition. I don't know if it ever left. It's the tradition of me asking you a question that I know you can't answer to start the podcast off. Yeah. I feel like I've been making more jokes at the beginning of our show now. You know, like I think of a good bit or a bad bit and I make a joke. But this time... Jokes. We we do joke. We tend to joke on occasion on this this podcast. Here here and there we laugh. No, I... A little little guffaw. Here's my question. What's the equivalent, the podcasting equivalent of swinging on 3-0? I feel like for us, the 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 three O equip equivalent is just having a podcast in the first place. You know, yeah. like really nothing that we exactly did in the decades of our lives, like preceding this, necessarily dictated that this is why we should be here right now. You know, we were we were handed some things, and then. Uh, and then the culture just threw us a fastball down the middle, you know, and was like, you want a podcast? And we're like, sure, fuck it. Why not? Wow. So you turn this into an examination of our privilege. I love absolutely, it. Let's get into absolutely. it. Absolutely. Only reason we have a fucking podcast is because we are lucky enough to go to college. This is true. <laughs> this is true. But we had to do it, you know, because you should always swing 3-0. You may end up with a, with a podcast. About labor and baseball, and socio, socio-cultural and economics. Uh, I feel like that's a good enough answer. I really put you on the spot there. It's my favorite thing to do. I know it is. Uh, this is going to be a fun episode. We talked to Jen Ramos of Baseball Prospectus. We're going to get to that interview in a little while. We, we do have a couple of news items to run through first. Um, but before we get to all of that good stuff, before we swing hard 3-0 on the podcasting fastball, I'm Bobby Wagner. I'm Alex Basley. And you're listening to Tipping Pitches. As you can probably tell, Alex and I love Fernando Tatis Jr. And we love that he swung 3-0 on, uh, and hit a grand slam. Do we need to talk more about it? This is, what it, uh, I said this to you before we started recording, but dumb Dumb Weekend Podcast and the discourse around this Dumb Weekend specific- Baseball, you mean? Dumb Weekend Podcast. Dumb Weekend Podcast is every week. <laughs> Sunday rolls around, another Dumb Weekend Podcasting. <laughs> Agreed, bro. I said this to you before we started uh, recording, but it's been a Dumb Weekend Baseball. And the discourse around this specifically, I think was particularly dumb because... There were a lot of there were a lot of layers to this unwritten rules discussion. You know, it wasn't just a bat flip. It wasn't just pimping a home run. It was very specifically tied to the ego of the other person on the mound. And it was the kind of thing that is not necessarily external to the game of baseball itself, you know? Like this is something Literally, you're not supposed to swing 
on this pitch. And it was especially bad because he had his manager and a fellow player basically come out and essentially reprimand him for that, which makes it even worse, right? The fact that you wouldn't have each other's backs for that sort of thing. But I don't know. I don't got takes on this. They all had I a know grand that, slam. That shit slaps. All I know is that if you swung 3-0, I would have your back in Thanks. the Zoom press conference afterwards at Eric Hosmer. Who, by the way, fucking hold on. Pause for me to play Vindicated by Dashboard Confessional. Vindicated. I am selfish. I am wrong. I was fucking right about Eric Hosmer. Fuck that guy. I've hated him ever since he was on the Royals and literally only hated him because of his face. Okay? And I didn't like the way that he seemed smug about how the Mets lost in the World Series, which is such a regressive take. But that's my take. And then it turns <laughs> Why was he out, showing some goddamn emotion on the biggest stage in baseball? And then it turns out that he didn't defend Fernando Tatis Jr. So I was just five years early. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, that's what they always say. Mm-hmm. Uh, no, I mean, obviously that was the most disappointing part of this. The weirdest part of this for me was that I'd never heard this rule. I'm just going to be transparent. I don't know that. I didn't know about this. Why? I mean, it doesn't seem like a, right, like a rule, so to speak. When I was playing high school baseball, I would usually take on a 3-0 count because it's because more of a... Because you're not Fernando because Tatis it's a, Jr. Because you, you <laughs> compared to well, Fernando exactly. Tatis, you stink. Well, yeah, but also, like, the dude's, like, it's a strategic thing. Like, oh, he can't hit a strike? Why am I going to swing at something outside the zone? You know? Like, let me see if he can hit his spot or whatever. I'm trying to see him. If you get the pitch to hit, you're supposed to not hit it? (laughs) What? Like, this one, it just feels like they're making it up on the fly, though. Like, how have I watched this much baseball in my life and never has this come up in this specific way like i've definitely heard announcers chastise batters for swinging on 3-0 and not getting a hit like flying out or swinging at ball four announcers chastise players for that all the time and we could maybe even have a nuanced conversation about why or why not that is acceptable or not acceptable but like for the other team to make a big stink about this in the face of everything that we're talking about, about baseball this year, like, and you know, I don't want to step on the conversation with Jen. Cause this is what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation with them, but it's a fucking pandemic, bro. I don't give a shit. If you lost by seven or 11 runs, I don't care. You were going to lose either way. Like just live through the moment and get over it. Let's just hope and pray that we get to our next game without a win testing positive. I don't give a shit if Fernando Tati swung on three Oh, yeah, there's no, there's nothing else to it. I'm not asking pitchers to throw a ball on O2. Like, what is? Are you breaking an unwritten rule if you strike someone out on three straight pitches? You didn't even give the hitter a chance. What the fuck's that all about? No, I'm asking pitchers to throw a ball. Oh, okay, on O2. That makes I want to make the game longer. Right. You shouldn't just go after them. No, that's not exciting to watch. It just, they're just, we're twisting ourselves into pretzels here to try and pretend that there's any like core ideology to this game. And really, it's just like, this is, yeah. If like, but like for the pitcher, if they're mad because like it it inflated his ERA, number one, I would suggest don't suck. Number two, I would suggest 
perhaps the Rangers should not hold it against him to give up a grand slam in this dumb season that doesn't count for anything anyway. If you're the yeah. Rangers manager, you should be like, it's fine. I don't care. We lost. The The truth of it is that we just don't relate to how these people in baseball think. Like, I just can't. I can't get in their heads. I'm okay with that. Clearly, their world sucks. Most of their world is just coming up with reasons to be mad at other people. And And look, we also are mad at other people for a lot of things pretty much all of the time. So maybe we're not that different, but at least we have reasons for it, you know? Mm-hmm. We're not making up these unwritten rules about capitalism. No, that shit's written in stone, man. Okay. Uh, can we talk about the Mets really quickly? The canceled sure. Subway series? Sure. It feels different for your team, to, to for it to happen to your team and for them to not be on TV. I just have to say, when I saw the push notification that the Mets had a positive test from one player and one coach or one front office member or one other member of the the traveling group, it felt weird. It felt closer to home. And I know it shouldn't because like all of these players equally deserve the right to play baseball, you know, virus free. And I should care equally about all of them, no matter what team they're on. And I do, but it does, it does feel more if 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 you can even believe this alex it does feel more dystopian for it to happen to your team that you follow and watch all of their games yeah well i also i think about marcus stroman opting out a week ago because he had concerns about covid and going and, to miami and going to miami and i there were a lot of people who supported his decision but there were a lot of people also who didn't support his decision, who were like, I wasn't expecting to Strom come back the the rest of the year anyway. Like he's a, you know, it's this is just self-preservation, whatever. And it's like, yeah, no shit, it's self-preservation. Have you looked around and seen what's going on in the world right now? We're all kind of trying to preserve ourselves right now. So if you Not see all of us, you know, we can use a little more self-preservation in the world right now. Yeah, you mean like not playing baseball in the middle of a pandemic? That's just collective preservation yeah or like not going to bars <laughs> not going to restaurants with your mask off i don't know dude i uh, yeah and because it's the mets there has to be like four layers to this but yeah they villainized cespedes as an organization i don't think they villainized stroman but a certain section of the media and fan base kind of villainized him for waiting until he got his year of eligibility to opt out which was a sick move by him. Props to him. And it just like, it just reinforces that, yeah, we shouldn't be playing baseball in a pandemic. But at the risk of having this conversation for the hundredth time, let's just, let's just end it there. Uh, before we get to our great conversation with Jen, uh, we talked to them about, Bobby, as you said, Tom Brenneman and, and some of the interesting R&D work going on at Baseball Prospectus and the and the hell world that is covering uh, the California League as a prospect evaluator. <laughs> we get into it all. Um, we got new shirts, baby. Unionize oh, the Miners shirts. Yeah. yeah, they're not new. They're just the they're just they're, the old ones. They're mostly new the place. same ones. Although we do have a a new Fernando Tatis Jr. one. Tatis to the moon. Thank you to Shakia Taylor for the the uh, the design inspiration for that. You can check all of them out uh, on our Twitter feed. All the proceeds are going to minor leaguers who are out of work right now and their families, um, as well as local little leagues in the San Diego area. So if you're interested in 
minor league unionization or the beauty and joy that is Fernando Tatis Jr., go to our Twitter page. Check it out. Kappa, Kappa T, man. The Tatis to the Moon shirt is like the most beautiful microcosm for what we are as a podcast because um, it's obviously something that we like, you know, we love Tatis. So we make a shirt about it. We donate it to local Little Leagues, whatever. That's all good. But how <laughs> was actually executed? We screwed up the accent on the eye because neither of us knew that Tatis wasn't using the accent on his eye. So we apologize for that if you ordered one of the few that were ordered before we changed the accent on the eye. And then um, the the photo that you used, which you QC'd with me beforehand. So I this is on me as well was a photo of him in his spring training jersey, which is like an interesting collector's item if you also ordered one before we changed the photo to him in his actual jersey. So if you got one of him wearing number 84, um, you have a limited edition because now the ones that we're selling, he's wearing number 23. I mean, it's kind of like those uh, those baseball cards that you get where there was clearly like a misprint. And yeah, they like had a typo. To, yeah, yeah, exactly. Where they call them like Derek Jeter or something like that. And you're like, hell yeah, this is going to be worth like Devin five Jeter. bucks in a few years. Yeah, exactly. Um, okay, let's go to our conversation with Jen Ramos, R&D at Baseball Prospectus, right after this break. But you put on quite a show, really had me going, but now it's time to go, curtains finally closing, that was quite a show, very entertaining, Alex. We're lucky to be joined by Jen Ramos. Jen, thanks so much for joining us here. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. Your first time on the show. We've been longtime admirers of your writing and your work and Twitter page as well. So thanks for coming (laughs) on the show. This is fun for us. I want to start before we talk about anything that's happened in the last week, the last month, the last two months, the last 10 years of baseball, whatever we are going to get into. I do want to start by asking you, is there something this week that you're really enjoying in the baseball world? Is there something on the field or off the field that you're like, I need to get more of this in my life this week. San Diego Padres Grand Slams. Hell yeah. Yeah. Slam Diego. Um, I was a little annoyed with how it started because of the reaction to Fernando Tatis Jr. But seeing everyone hit more Grand Slams, it's like, okay, now if you're you know, going to be swinging on 3-0 count, you have to because you need more Grand Slams. It's the Slam Diego Padres. I know this is like their calling card now. <laughs> I should say, I didn't even give your credentials. R&D at Baseball Prospectus. I want to talk more about what that means. What what exactly R&D at Baseball Prospectus looks like. But Alex, you want to talk about Slam Diego? You want to share your take? You got a take I, on Slam Diego, bro? I don't know. Do I have take? I mean, what Jake Cronenworth is participating in this now, right? I think he was the one who hit the Grand Slam last night. I mean, this team is... Stunning. My, I think my mom just texted me and was like, the, the Padres! Exclamation mark, exclamation mark. This exclamation is actually mark. funny. I was going to share this with you on the podcast in the intro, Alex, but this is the perfect time to share it as well. Your mom texted me the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, we've been texting about the Padres all week because she knows that, like, I'm a degenerate who can never turn the Padres off. Like, I have to have them on no matter what else I'm doing, whether it's, like, work or anything else. But, Jen, great place to start the conversation. The Padres. The best thing in baseball. <laughs> They really are. Well, they're they're very I think um they're the they're like the perfect example of I think what we 
what we're rallying for as far as what baseball could be, right? Yeah. Just like that More kind Eric of... Hosmer. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> um, yeah, no, but it, like that kind of young core, um, those group of players who aren't... Uh, who aren't afraid to kind of buck baseball's um, traditions. They have like a handful of players who have received ire in one way or another from the baseball community at large. Manny Machado is no stranger to that. Um, but yeah, they're fun. They're great. They're also good. Yeah. <laughs> I have to say that like this would be slightly less interesting if they were like seven and 20, you know, but they're not. They're really fun to watch because they're also winning and making late comebacks and and doing it in dramatic fashion and so the spotlight is on them but i don't know we we've been annoying about the padres all year but so i'm glad that someone else can come on here and be like no it's actually legit like it's it's fun to watch the padres and this is the thing that's bringing me baseball joy this week yeah i mean i've been i've been expecting the padres to be pretty good seeing um their prospects in the california league over the past few years and they've constantly had like so many good prospects like mckenzie gore fernando tatis jr um, and I, I can probably go down an entire list of Padres prospects that I'm just like, these, this team is going to be really good for a while. So like to see that actually manifesting in MLB is really cool and they're really fun. <laughs> yes, <Yeah>. absolutely. <laughs> um, so I'm sure we could talk about the Padres, uh, for the, the next hour if we really wanted to, um, but uh, we wanted to to talk with you a bit about a uh, an occurrence that happened this past week. There's no there's no real way to tip tiptoe around this or transition from talking about the San Diego Padres to this sort of thing. Um, Cincinnati Reds play by play announcer Tom Brenneman um, was caught on a hot mic saying a homophobic slur. Real baseball in 2020 energy like i feel like this yeah. is you know the kind of thing that you can cross off the bingo card now um but it really it really sucked and there was i'm not going to repeat what he said um but it was a reference to um Kansas City uh a derogatory reference to Kansas City and he came out and uh the the following inning and and apologized and I apologize is maybe a strong word, but he, he recognized that he said a word and then he called a home run in the middle of his apology. Um, and then he continued, which was bizarre and we can break that down. Um, but right off the bat, Jen, can you just talk to us a bit about like your gut reaction when you heard what would ha- what had happened when you heard his i don't know ap- apology so to speak like kind of what was going through your head with all of this was it just like of course yeah it was i guess to me not surprising that it happened um wasn't surprised that it got caught on a hot mic because i'm like of course it won't happen when they're like consciously on air and they're aware that they're you know on TV, uh, but it doesn't really surprise me that there are people around baseball who say that. Um, so when that happened and I saw the video of it, I was just like, eh, of course this would happen. It was just bound to happen at some point. Um, and my expectation would be more like, 
you know, if there wasn't a pandemic, someone would say it in person and then um, like a fan might hear it or something, but um, not necessarily a hot mic situation that I didn't expect really. But my reaction was more like, I guess, you know, just like, this is what we're doing this week. Yeah. It's like, <laughs> I, I guess this is where everything is going. And then after everything with the Ryan Christensen thing with the A's, I was like, okay, so we've got an unintentional Nazi salute and now a homophobic slur. Baseball is doing great this year. Um, so with that, I mean, after the Ryan Christensen thing, I was like, you know, I, I can't really predict what's going to happen next, but I don't think it'll be good either. Yeah. Yeah. I, and um, maybe this is too, maybe this is too hard of a question to just like jump right into, but I feel like there is such a distinct pattern that these things follow. It happened with Ryan Christensen. It happened with Tom Brenneman where baseball lifer does X that is horrific. And then the rest of his close friends in the baseball community stick their necks out for him to say that he's actually a good guy and, you know, he doesn't mean X, Y, Z. And we go through this cycle where baseball gives itself opportunities year over year to condemn anti-LGBTQ behavior, to condemn neo-fascism, to, you know, like any number of things to condemn racism. And it feels like the cycle is actually designed in order to keep those people safe, like in the event that they actually screw up. So I'm wondering, like, from your perspective in following these things, um, if there is like a way to that that we can help break out of the cycle a way that like the baseball community can push MLB to break out of this distinct cycle that we see every time where someone messes up and then goes through apology and then it gets kind of swept under the rug as a community. I guess one of the things that I've been thinking about, and I guess I've also been doing this a lot with the, what happened with Yuli Gurriel in the 2017 world series with the racist gesture to you Darvish is there's no accountability. No one ever follows up on it by like six months later and say, Hey, you know, you were committed to doing better. Have you done better? What actions have you taken that prove this? Um, because I remember with the Yuli Gurriel incident um, that there was really n not that much accountability taken for it. Um, they said that he was going to go through like sensitivity training. Um, but then I had seen a comment around spring training 2018 that was more along the lines of saying like, basically everything was more, I'm sorry I got caught. No real accountability. Um, no real action taken to understand and why the gesture was offensive. And for me, I just noticed that after that spring training, it was never really brought up again. Um, so part of the problem with why the cycle keeps perpetuating is also that because MLB is really a lot of access journalism. And if you try to question things, sometimes your credential could potentially be revoked. Um, so I sometimes wonder that, you know, beat writers don't don't prod them even more saying like hey what's going on here because there's no accountability being held and we kind of saw that also with Susan Slusser with the Ryan Christensen thing where she just kept defending on Twitter like oh he's a good person and then he went with a oh his best friend is Jewish and I was like 
oh, did she really go there? That was not great. But the fact that she was quick to defend him rather than holding him accountable shows that whole lack of accountability problem because I've been through way too many years of J school to know like the point of J school to teach journalists is you are the watchdogs, not the lapdogs. You're there to hold people accountable. And that should be the same in baseball journalism, but we don't get any of that. Yeah. Wow. Let's do, let's do an hour of J school talk right here. Honestly, let's hour of Padres, hour of J school. Like you're hitting our sweet spot right now. Alex and I met in a J school class. I don't, have we ever told that story on air, Alex? No, probably because it's not that interesting. But the story is um, I saw he was wearing an A's hat and I was like, he must be a baseball fan if he's wearing an A's hat to this J school class in our freshman year of college at NYU where nobody else gives a shit about sports. And um, then I was like, hey, man, want to be friends? <laughs> the rest is history. And now we're both comically wearing A's shirts on this podcast with you, Jen. So yeah. uh, we didn't plan that, but here we are. <laughs> no, I think you're so right about the, the watchdog versus the lapdog thing. Especially because, like, all of media has been stripped down and torched down to the point where, like, the only media outlets left are ones that are financially tied to the league and and are like their partner, their either their broadcasting partner or like their partner in creating content or like a rising tide raises all boats kind of situation with how media covers the league. If the league does well, then the media does well. But in instances like this, in flashpoints like this, like that model just doesn't work because you need more people to call out what is flagrantly morally wrong and reprehensible i don't know how we fix access journalism that any suggestions um (laughs) probably not having john Heyman tweet everything he on his mind sometimes yeah i think you could you could have ended the sentence after not having john Heyman. um Yeah, we're not we're not gonna no slander on this podcast. We'll choose our words carefully. Uh, I mean, what was really interesting to me in the kind of aftermath of the situation was seeing players kind of, uh, if not call him out, basically say, you know, that's unacceptable to the to the LGBTQ community. You know, I stand with you. Amir Garrett was one of those players. I think Anthony Desclafani was another one. Um, and that was interesting to me because this is not necessary. I mean, this is far from the first um, incident, uh, this anti-LGBTQ incident that has taken place over the last few years even in baseball. Um, but it feels like kind of one of the first times that we've seen players take take a proactive stance in being like, no, that sort of thing doesn't belong here. Um, I'm curious your thoughts on on that, especially when, because when, say, for example, Josh Hader um, came out with all of those tweets, his team essentially st- stood behind him and said, yeah, he's growing, he's learning, but you know, he's a kid and it's, it's all right. We accept his apology. So where does the, what's the disconnect there? Do you think? Yeah. So that was another thing that I was thinking of because they tried to excuse it. It was like, Oh, well he was 17. He didn't know better. And I was like, well, when I was 17, I knew not to use slurs, you know, that just also felt to me like an, I'm sorry, I was caught type of situation. But I think also the landscape has definitely changed in baseball where you can, comfortably 
say something against uh, against something that's bigoted like this. Um, and I think you know a lot of that does have to do with the uprisings and the Black Lives Matter, um, pro Black Lives Matter talk that has been going on with the Players Alliance. Um, and I think that that has made it more comfortable for people to come out and say like, there's no place for that in baseball, um, which is a good thing. Um, and I feel like, I think Amir Garrett was actually the first player to come out and say something like, this is not acceptable. And we all know that he's part of that players Alliance and he has been outspoken about black lives matter. And so it doesn't surprise me that, he was also outspoken saying like, look, this doesn't have a place in baseball as well. Um, and then for Matt Bowman to come after him and Anthony Disclafani and even Joey Votto. Um, what I was impressed by with Votto's statement was saying like, I'm not perfect. I'm probably going to get something wrong in this, but it was you know important that he said something and taking a stand against it. And I feel like that was also part of his his journey to like reflect back on what he had thought before with black lives matter and realize, Oh, I was wrong. And I comfortable saying that I was wrong about that before. I think that's part of like the new landscape that's coming into sports where it's now o- becoming more okay to call things out when they're bigoted in any kind of way. And I don't think that would have happened in any other situation. I don't think that would have happened in any other political landscape especially when you have a member of the Players Alliance being the first one to come out and say, like, we're taking a stand against this because, you know, you know that's where the whole intersectionality thing is. It's not just um, one specific type of LGBTQ person, you know, that affects white LGBTQ people, black LGBTQ people, you know, brown LGBTQ, everyone in between. So it's not just one certain person affects everyone so you know you can't take a stand against one thing and not be against another bigoted thing it all comes together somehow so I feel like this wouldn't have happened any other year except this one where players also took a stand against it because as we saw with the whole Josh Hader incident um in the press conference you kind of saw like a bunch of his teammates standing behind him but when you look at the looks on their faces they didn't really look happy to be there um but at the same time like you know that a lot of them can't probably they didn't probably feel comfortable saying something against it because that's just kind of how the culture was back then but we're now kind of seeing a shift in baseball culture because there are more people openly talking about bigoted incidents while they're players in the past People usually saw it when the person was out of baseball. Now we're seeing it while they're still playing. Yeah, that is, I mean, of all of the things and all of the frustration and and sadness over the last week about this, and that is the one thing that is like a, a beacon of positivity, I think, in that players can feel comfortable in calling this out in the moment as opposed to waiting a couple months and calling it out in the off season when there's less of a spotlight on it and it's less of a flashpoint. I, I always think like with incidents like this um, and we talked about it with Christensen who we've brought up a couple times in this conversation now, but the most alarming 
thing to me every time something like this happens is that it comes so easily like and and they and these people who have these moments of of a- acting so hateful have clearly done it a bunch of times like they've had a lot of trial runs for something like this where they were trying to make a joke or um they were just throwing around slurs like because they don't they don't care and they don't hold it back among their friends and it just speaks so clearly to me to this idea that i'm sure alex and like that we grew up in where the sort of like clubhouse energy around baseball is that like anything goes and so to see players setting an example of something that this doesn't go kind of cuts against that and that at least for me is like something to take away my cynicism about this whole situation some sort of small little carrot that we can carry with us jen you're on to something about the the kind of conversation around black lives matter really really opening up a path for it to be okay for players to actually come out and in support of these like social justice movements effectively um it was pretty callously co-opted by major league baseball as a brand obviously and that's going to happen but at the very least when when even the sport itself says you know we're going to put hashtag blm on the mound for a week and then we're going to get rid of it but we're going to do that for a week it provides a, a small amount of cover for players to kind of come out and say okay yeah i i stand with this movement as well i am against police brutality or whatever it is um and i think historically it seems like major league baseball has been very passive with that sort of thing um and it's unfortunate that it takes these kind of instances that are like rife with mass social uprisings that it takes, you know, MLB, uh, that that's what it takes for MLB to actually recognize that like there's something larger going on that they, that they need to address. Do you think that, um, there's any sort of wake up call that is coming to MLB in terms of like, uh, issues around homophobia in the clubhouse or anything like that? I mean, what do you think think the runway kind of looks like over the next few years right now? It's complicated, I guess, especially when it comes to homophobia, transphobia in MLB, because for the past few seasons, Billy Bean, uh, without the E, not the A's Billy Bean, um, has been going to different MLB clubhouses during spring training and talking about, hey, like, you don't know who your teammates is closeted, you know? Um, And there has been a lot of movement towards getting more pro-LGBTQ plus education and trying to tamp down on slurs and any other derogatory comments and actions. But it's clear that it's not necessarily working. Um... Because even if you have someone going out there and talking to these teams during spring training, it's it's made itself clear that it's not necessarily working because these things still keep happening. Um, and I remember, God, this was probably long, long ago, maybe about seven or eight years ago. Um, you know, Escobar had the same slurs written on his eye black. Mm-hmm. Um, but 
there was never really any follow-up or accountability there. Um, not like this. And that was on the same kind of public platform. You know, you there's a photo up close that has the slurs on his face. Um, but no one came out saying, you know, that's wrong. We need to condemn it. Um, but there was a lot more movement in talking about, you know, how to address this in clubhouses. But there is something to be said about how it's not necessarily sticking if there are still instances of it happening, like Kevin Pillar a couple of years ago, Daniel Murphy a couple of years ago. Yeah, the fact that we can just like r- like reel these off, you off know, the you'd be like, oh, head. that yeah. that instance three or four years ago, yeah, yeah. Well, so I think it's not sticking. So that's something that they need to retool. And not to be like this is systemic, dude, but like this is so systemic with how we teach baseball when you're like seven and, and the way who is teaching baseball when you're seven and the lack of inclusivity for coaches and people who haven't been in the game for a long time to teach kids how to play the game. Like it is just all part of the same problem. And every time MLB has an issue with this, they don't reckon with that. They don't reckon with the fact that their players came from travel ball and AAU baseball and high school baseball and circuit baseball. And they became these people from being in the dugout at those places. Like they didn't just get to MLB and decide to, to throw slurs around. Like they were learning that and it was accepted by their coaches and other players at a younger level. And MLB just seems to have no interest in that. And I don't know how as a baseball media, as a baseball fandom, as a baseball podcast that we are, like how we compel MLB to give a shit about that. It's so hard. It's so sprawling. And I think that's also the bigger issue with MLB as a whole is like, they're just going to keep trying to do the, whatever they can to keep the bottom line. And we're, we've, we're seeing it now with the fact that they're playing, you know, in the middle of a deadly pandemic. That's obviously just to protect the bottom line. So it's hard to try and, compel them to say hey take this seriously when they're not taking a lot of things seriously to begin with yeah well the the unfortunate fact of the matter is it's like mob has you know i am sure that rob manfred or whoever has in his office like a little a little live poll of like social issues in America, you know, and once social issues. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And once it's like, Oh, 51% of Americans support, you know, this thing, then Rob Benford's like, okay, like we can publicly acknowledge it now. Right. But like, otherwise it's the kind of thing where, especially in baseball, which historically the audience is older and whiter and largely middle class. Like those are not exactly the demographics that, um, that are going to be at the, the forefront of those, um, I guess social movements, so to speak. I mean, we saw, um, I think it was a few years ago. I think this was when Sean Doolittle was still with the A's where they had, um, like a sort of pride night. Um, and there were a bunch of fans who were like, well, this is atrocious. Like I, you know, I already bought my tickets, blah, blah, blah. I don't want to participate in this virtue signaling. And so Aaron, right? Sean's partner is like, Hey, we'll buy back the tickets from you. That's fine. You don't want to support it. We don't want you 
here for this sort of thing. Um, But even I think small instances like that go to show that like it goes beyond the clubhouse or the announcer's booth or whatever. It's so endemic to like, like you said, Bobby, the, the system that it's built into and like, not to just gesture widely at America yeah, right not now. Not to be like, right? open your but third like, eye, people. Like, <laughs> yeah. Baseball's a mirror to society. A hundred percent. Yes. A hundred percent. It is so, <laughs> it is like, it is the barometer for how society feels about things because it has been so entrenched and it has been passed down through generation through generation. They're just, the, they're exact mirrors for each other. Yeah. And it's also telling that for the longest time, Sean Doodle is like, the only white ball player willing to take a stand on things. Yeah. And putting a lot at risk at that sort of thing. Uh, When it comes to any, really any issue, I mean, even something like unionization, for example, which we is off discussed here, right? It's like, it's often more beneficial to just like stay quiet because you don't want to be the one who's raising that, who's raising that ruckus, who's causing a scene because you put your your livelihood at risk that way. Bleak, but hopefully, hopefully we can we can work on this as a baseball community. <laughs> Jen, I want to I want to transition. I am fascinated to hear about what you do and um, what R and D at Baseball Prospectus looks like. You've obviously done a ton of really great writing in the past, and I'd love to hear about your um, transition between the two those two forms of like thinking about baseball, you know, whether it's like writing about it culturally or analyzing it from a more um, R and D perspective. So can you just like pull back the curtain a little bit on what your, your job and work at baseball prospectus looks like and um, talk about your path towards that? Yeah. So um, my path towards that was um, not really complicated, I guess. Um, I had known folks at Baseball Prospectus for a long time because I used to write at the Hardball Times. Um, I used to write at Beyond the Box Score. Um, so I knew a lot of people who had moved from like Beyond the Box Score over to Baseball Prospectus because it's a natural stepping stone in the um, sabermetric world, the baseball analytics world. Um, so when I had gotten fired from an indie ball team in Northern California, the Sonoma Stompers, I just sent said saying, Hey, I just got fired, but I still want to do something baseball. Um, I, I'm in a position right now where I just need something to get my mind off getting fired. Can I do some R and D work? And that's how I came on as an R and D intern for baseball prospectus. Um, so a lot of the work there has come out in different ways. R and D does a lot of stuff you know, in the stats side. So whenever you see something statistical, you know, Picota projections on baseball prospectus, that's what the R&D side does. They start formulating, you know, the next calculations for something. For me, um, some of my work involved the Women's Baseball World Cup database from 2018, getting that database for pitch and hit tracking data online. Um, so I was part of the team that helped make that possible. Um, I was mostly working on the front end side, trying to get to make sure that the website was usable for people, trying to make sure that if someone searches something, then it shows up in the right way. Um, which is also huge because not a lot, 
I don't think there's any other place that has women's baseball pitch and hit tracking data, um, which I'm really honored to be part of the team that helped bring that to life because more people need that kind of stats, you know? Um, so that's kind of what I, I've worked on in the past for baseball prospectus is bringing those stats to life so that people can see it. Um, I know one of, you know, I've worked on stuff with international baseball data. Um, that's been part of my interests over there. Um, haven't really worked much on stuff lately just because of everything going on, but, um, there's, there's a lot of good stuff coming out from there. And R and D on baseball side means working to get these stats on the public side available to a lot of people. I think research and development and I'm like, Oh, so just the underpinning of everything yeah. at baseball prospectus. That's Jen, no pressure. <laughs> and also like, not only that, but you mentioned Pakoda. I'm like, it's so I think that about this with like fan graphs and everything. And every time I read my subscription of fan graphs, I'm always like, what would the baseball landscape, what would the baseball media landscape look like without Pakoda, without fan graphs, without all of these places and the work that, that you all are doing. And I just, it's so wild how like, you know, a couple places do all this work and it just spawns all of this work, like all of this other work off of it. I'm so fascinated by that. So I'd love to hear about like how, how you work on that and, and what that looks like, you know? Yeah. Especially since like uh, baseball prospectus is like started in 1996 and like way back in the Usenet forum era <laughs> of everything. Um, and so many people from baseball perspectives have gone on to four things. Heim Bloom, uh, the GM of the Red Sox, first wrote an article for baseball perspectives in 1997 and look where he is now. So it it's really changed baseball a lot. I mean, I know we have a list of like who from baseball perspectives has gone on to MLB and it's a long list. So well, Jen, you've given us so much of your time and and shared a lot about like, you know, what it what R and D looks like at Baseball Perspectives, which we're really appreciative of. Um, is there anything else that you're working on, or like anywhere people can find your your work or or see? I guess if people are listening and they're they're not familiar with Baseball Perspectives, like what is the best way to find you and and um, the projects that you work on there? Um. Yes. Yeah, so, I mean, if you just search Baseball Perspectives, I'm usually um, cause I'm also on the prospect evaluation side. So anytime you look on prospects, um, page on baseball perspectives, you'll probably find some of my writing there. Um, we just, part- I just participated in a rookie round table of Sixto Sanchez yesterday. So, mm, um, <laughs> so that must have been fun. <laughs> it, wow. That curveball. Yeah. Um, <laughs> 84 miles an hour yesterday, but the slider and change up chef kiss right there um <laughs> but yeah so i'm i'm participating in some minor league baseball rookie round tables and stuff and writing some stuff about call-ups i wrote about dalton varsho a couple weeks ago um so yeah a lot of my work is just on baseball prospectus itself um i'm sure if you search my name jen mac ramos on there or just jen ramos you know it'll show up wait before you go i i do want to ask about the prospect eval part of it because we don't talk to a ton of people who do prospect evaluation. And you know, we talked to Craig Goldstein a couple of weeks, but we didn't ask him about this. Um, 
how, how, how do you do that? Like, <laughs> it's so many prospects and they're at so many different levels. And what do, what the hell do all of the numbers even mean? And how do you like, cause I, when I, you know, like I was in a, in a fantasy league where like you could draft minor league players and it was a dynasty league. So like once they came up, like they would, be, and I was like crunching numbers and, and other people's prospect evaluations and like trying to understand it. And it's so sprawling and like so unruly. I'm so curious, like what your methodology is. How do you figure out Jen Ramos thinks this person is good? Yeah. So I primarily um, do evaluation in high able. So just plain old able, um, the California league, which is the most ridiculous league I've ever had a chance to watch. I've, I've seen other leagues, you know, I've seen, um, the Northwest League up in the Pacific Northwest. I've seen Eastern League. I've um, seen Pacific Coast League. None have been as ridiculous as the California League, um, especially because there are two ballparks that are com- absolute launching pads, although one of them is no longer a team here. Rest in peace, High Desert Mavericks. Um, so it's very hard and very nuanced um, because when you're pitching at an altitude that's like halfway to Coors Field with 30 mile an hour winds. How do you exactly evaluate a ball player in those conditions? Yeah. Which I'm also like, well, maybe that's why the Rockies moved their affiliate there. So their pitchers can get used to the high altitude, (laughs) not necessarily the 30 mile an hour winds and trying to hit one to the freeway. Um, because the ballpark in Lancaster, when you hit a home run right around right field, right center, you could hit a car going onto the freeway there. Because <laughs> the on-ramp is right behind the outfield fence. Yeah. Does does uh, does baseball prospectus have, like, cars hit above replacement <laughs> player, you know? Is that they coming should. soon? <laughs> Windows should. shattered per nine. <laughs> I, I've seen a lot of... A lot of things broken in a in minor league ballparks. Um, a couple of um, couple of folks I've seen gotten their laptops smashed because of foul balls hit behind home plate. Um, so I Not think like a, a Kelly colleague or two have lost laptops that way. But for me, what I I look for is I think about the league as a whole. Um, it used to be an extreme hitters league when Bakersfield and High Desert were in the league because they were places that were easy to hit home runs at. They were launching pads. Now that those two teams are gone, the only extreme hitters park is Lancaster. So I've had to just like, okay, if you're in Lancaster, you're not really looking at the pitching line. You cannot look at the pitching line because you are obviously going to see a bunch of home runs there, a bunch of hits there. Um, so you really have to look at how well the pitcher is commanding the ball, how well he's controlling it. Can he control it in those extreme, um, extreme climate, so to speak. Um, I'm really seeing like, is he shaking off the catcher that much? Um, what's, what's his sequencing looking like? Um, is he following up the fastball with a changeup? Is he following up with a curveball, a slider? Um, is it two seam, four seam? Um, is he trying to chase a hitter with a high fastball or is he trying to get him with an off speed pitch? You know, really going into like, how does that all work? Um, so when it comes to minor league baseball, I 
I always try to tell people you need to contextualize the stat lines. Um, and that's the same with hitters as well. Um, because I remember my first league, first year covering league was 2013. Um, God, that was so long ago. Um, <laughs> I'm just thinking about it like, wow, I was a 21 year old idiot doing all this stuff. Who let me do that? Um, no, but in, in my first season, I learned like, you know, you can't just look at the stat lines because a guy could go over for a couple of days. Um, but it's not necessarily saying like, oh, he might be making adjustments to his swing and he's not necessarily hitting well because he's trying to make those adjustments work, trying to see what is comfortable for him while being consciously making those, um, those adjustments. And that's not necessarily going to be reflected in the stat line. Um, and he might have more strikeouts than usual because he's swinging at everything, or he might be drawing more walks than usual because he's um, more patient and trying to be more conscious of like how he's swinging. So in those contexts, it's really hard to just look at the stat line for minor league baseball because um, from a player development side, you there's a lot more that goes into it. And you're really looking at like, where is he holding his hands in the bat? How is he angling the bat? Um, is it a little bit more on his shoulders, off his shoulders? How is his stance? Is he taking wide strides towards the plate? So there's a lot of questions that go into it. Um, and for me, that's also how I look at it. Like I have a checklist, a mental checklist of like, okay, I need to look for this, this, and this in the sky. How's he approaching it at the plate? What's his defense look like? Um, is he making, you know, is he able to make mid at bat adjustments or does it go from at bat to at bat? Um, and so it's very intricate to try and evaluate players that way because you're really looking at things that a lot of people might not be able to see from the stat line or even just watching MILB TV. Um, because even though there is a lot of information out there, um, you're not really looking at it the same way as you're looking at it at the ballpark because um, when you're at the ballpark, you can go, you can walk around the ballpark and looking at it from different angles. Like um, one of the things that I had learned early on is if you're trying to get video of the hitter, you want to look at it open face stance because then you're really breaking down the stance um, as you're seeing it, you know, kind of face to face, not just looking at it behind home plate, but if you're looking at it from MILB TV, you're probably getting from a high home plate behind the outfield fence perspective. Um, so you're not really getting all the angles that you want to see for evaluating minor leaguers. Um, and it's not really contextualizing it that much, but that's why there's, you know, the public prospect eval side who is there on the ground, being able to look at these guys and reading scouting reports. Mm -hmm. Well, I'm, I'm glad someone is doing this I was work just going to say, I, I don't envy that, but the attention to detail. <laughs> well, I was going to, we, we need to have you back on solely. Okay. So, so part two of this podcast, I think is Padres part three, 
Um, journalism 101 is journalism and then part four is an hour long on how to properly watch a minor league baseball game (laughs) because the extent of my knowledge is hey he's throwing 85 i don't think he's gonna make it to the majors yeah (laughs) uh and that's about all i got (laughs) um jen ramos you can follow them at jen mac ramos on twitter jen thank you so much for coming on we really appreciate you giving us your time yeah of course thanks for having me No three up, three down this week. Hope you enjoyed our conversation with Jen Ramos. We don't want to subject you to 30 more minutes of Alex and I just like bumbling through our opinions about what it made us happy or sad this week. Yeah. I, I really didn't want to talk about Kurt Schilling anyway. So frankly, this is just a better avoidance of that. Our midweek pod about Kurt Schilling's feelings on cancel culture will be available on Patreon only. <laughs> No, but um, in all seriousness, do look out for a midweek pod. We have a bonus episode coming this week. I think you're really going to enjoy it. It was a lot of fun to record that today. And you'll be hearing that on Thursday. So keep an eye out for that. Anything else that you, that we need to let the listeners know? Go find the shirts. Just go get the shirts. Yeah, Just go get, get the, the shirts. shirts. We'll, we'll, we'll drop the link in the description. Um, otherwise, thank you, y'all, for, uh, for listening. Follow us on Twitter, tipping underscore pitches. Maybe shoot us an email at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com if you like have a question for us. You know, you're like, why the hell do you I, talk about Fernando Tatis Jr. so much? And, yeah. you know, drop a drop a pin and we'll come find you and tell you. Um, <laughs> Call back. Uh, <laughs> or shoot us a DM. You know, I will answer your DM. If you DM us, it will get answered. It is true. Unless you're ridiculous and <laughs> in which case I will not answer but slow your roll guys uh, thanks for listening everyone we'll be back midweek with the bonus pod hello everybody uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez tipping pitches this is the one that I love the most so we'll see you next week see ya